This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, it's a London Fashion Week special. We recap the recent event with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. We also visit an exhibition supporting and celebrating design rebels. Plus, we find out about a platform ushering in a more diverse group of fashion industry professionals. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Hello and welcome to today's show. I'm joined by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Hello. Make sure our listeners could hear from you before I go off on this rant that I've lined up. Um, Just no, but go for it. It's, 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 your, it's your show, your spotlight. It's our show. It's the team's show. It's uh, Tuesday the 19th of September 2023 and Fashion Week is, is wrapping up or has wrapped up. Uh, it completely uh, took over the capital. I must admit when I got off the train at Bond Street this morning and it had been rebranded Burberry Street, I was a little bit thrown. I feel like the scale of this year's event, I keep running into things in in the street. I saw a Hermes pop up uh, in central London as well. I mean, what's the mood been like? How, how have people in the industry been been feeling about this, this week's event? Because I think certainly for people that aren't in it, like myself, it, it does feel like it's everywhere. I think it's been a good week and people have been feeling quite a bit as, as exactly because of that. It, it's been, especially this season, a real celebration of London as a fashion capital and everything that it has done over the years to this season in particular. There were, except from the shows, a lot of this interesting events happening. We had some incredible exhibition openings, uh, the Chanel exhibition at the V&A and the Rebel exhibition at the Design Museum and all these big takeovers from Bond Street Station that the Burberry has rebranded. There is the Hermes kiosk. Anya Heinmarch has a Japanese stationery shop near Sloan Street. So it's quite exciting to see that people are participating and it's more what the British Fashion Council is trying to do is make this a citywide celebration. And it just makes it all that more exciting and more upbeat than just keeping it close to a small group of people. Tell me a little bit about these exhibitions as well, because obviously there's, there's, I guess, the pop-up things you can walk into, there's exhibitions and then there's shows. I mean, what, what attracted you to Rebel 30 Years of London Fashion at the Design Museum? So Rebel um, is a celebration of Nugent, which is the talent support scheme of the British Fashion Council. It started in 1993, exactly 30 years ago. So this is just celebrating the work that they've been doing over 30 years and how much support they've uh, they've given to London-based designers. And it's a really exciting show because it, it just shows how much talent has passed through London over the years. It started with Alexander McQueen and it goes on to um, more modern names like Marika Tranzu, Erdem, Roxanda, people that have really brought in colour and print and optimism in uh, the 2000s in London when it was more bleak and, and, um, and a stressful time. And then you also get to experience different parts of what it's like to be a young fashion designer. They've recreated a design studio that resembles being in, in Central St. Martin's studying fashion. And you get to see their sketches and a little bit of their process. There's a room that replicates a club night. And you 
get to see what they do off duty and how they get inspired. And uh, are we allowed to see that? Is it something we should be seeing? <laughs> you should definitely see that. There's music and some of the most eccentric outfits that uh, have come out of London during the 90s and the early 2000s. So it's it's really fun and it really captures, I think, that rebellious spirit of London that keeps people coming back. Okay, amazing. And that that is on until February next year, so there is time. But let's jump to the interview that you did with Sarah Moa, who is the fashion journalist and co-curator of the exhibition. The show is called Rebel, and in every single instance, these are pieces which have been designed and made by people in their 20s while they are in the new gen scheme who have gone against the grain who've always found it within themselves, and this is part of uh, British fashion education, to be themselves and not to be derivative. Rebellion can take any surprising form. In the darkest of times, there have been explosions of colour and print, which have sort of acted as antidepressant fashion, which has been brought abroad. We sat down a, a year ago and started discussing how this story should be represented. And... I'm quite phobic about mannequins and about sort of shop dummy, shop dummy <laughs> fashion. And um, also, I didn't think that um, having a, a chronological exhibition would necessarily actually tell the story, um, answer the question that people, when I travel to Paris, Milan, New York, wherever, people always say to me, why is it that London keeps producing these waves and waves of um, of talent? We decided that it should be a show which which answers that question. Why is it and how is it that London is so unique and specific in having this culture? So you, you, you go, actually go into an art school, you go into a club zone with people queuing up, going to a club, having fun. You have also an immersive experience which uh, symbolises the, the place, which was a council house in Tooting Beck, where uh, Lee McQueen made his collection with a voiceover narrated by his friend and print designer, Simon Unglis, who lived with him. And we go into another area where the questions are, there's deep dive into why why so many young people in London start up their own fashion businesses. We wanted to give the public, especially young people, the sensation of being in a backstage area where the many accessories are, are displayed. There is a huge catwalk with six of the most important collections which have come out of London displayed, trying to give as close simulacrum as of the sensation of being at, at a catwalk show as possible. This show is going to prove is how much society can learn from the creativity of extraordinary uh, young people. I've seen in society, in, in, in commentary about young people through, I mean, over you know, over 20 years, the disparaging of young people, their hoodies, their waists, they're on their phones, they're feckless, they're snowflakes. This show is a, an absolute testament against that. You, know, you would never believe that that so many of these, these collections were made on, you know, on the kitchen table or on the floor in tiny studios. And then suddenly there's this most stunningly glamorous look that's come out. It comes out of the culture of London. This is a multicultural City. This is not a show about British design. This is a show about people who are magnetised to this city and whose families have connections to many different countries. I actually mentally started counting up, and I've got to 50 countries who we can thank for producing these generations of extraordinary thinkers and creative people who convene in London. Probably many of them have, have come to study here 
London consists of designers who have come from, you know, small towns and cities all over the UK, in Scotland particularly. And I think that there's something that this country politically, especially governmentally, completely misses is the fact that the, this creativity is a superpower. It's a magnet for people who want to set up businesses as well, which is what has happened over the last, well, over these last 30 years. Many people have come here, found their friends, found their people, set up their businesses and stayed because it's been a fertile environment for setting up your own fashion business as, a, as an independent. Sarah Moa there. I mean, you sort of touched on it at the top of the interview there before we launched into that with, with Sarah. But tell us the importance of a scheme like NewGen. What, what does this do for, for creatives in a city and, and for a city's design scene or fashion scene itself? I think it's hugely important, especially in a city like London, where you've got the big design schools like London College of Fashion and Central St. Martins and students graduate and they are really encouraged to start their own brands, which is amazing because they're so creative and they have so much to say and so much to offer. But at the same time, starting a brand is also a huge business task that you need support and you need funds. So this is what Nugent does. It funds the most creative talent that is coming out of London and provides the mentorship and the skills that they might lack when it comes to setting up a business. And I mean, the scheme started in 1993 in response to the financial crisis of the time. She got involved in the early 2000s again when she saw that Designers were really struggling because of the current economic situation. And now I think there is another wave. We're seeing designers struggle. Some people are having to stop showing or shut operations completely. So it's a very important time to draw attention to what Nugent is doing and to do as much to support these young talents because they won't exist without the funds and without the, the support. So often, you, I guess you kind of go through design school and you learn how to design or how to understand or how to think about solving problems, but you don't necessarily get, I guess, that business education. And, and that's what this sounds like it's almost doing in a way. Exactly. And running a fashion label today, it is also knowing how, what a profit margin is and how to do smart marketing like Burberry is doing. And it's a collection, but it's also uh, taking over Bond Street Station or it's a logo. It's, it's a smart collaboration. So there's all these things to consider. And when you're an independent business trying to make it in an industry that's dominated by the big conglomerates, it's even harder. And London is full of this young independent name. So they need the support. Definitely. I mean, one of the designers that has benefited from this support is David Comer, who shared his experience of being part of the new gen scheme with you. David is one of my favourite people in fashion. He started with the help of Nugent, he's Georgian and uh, he, he studied in London and then set up his own label. Nugent did give him that initial push that he needed and he then sort of went on over the last 10 years being really methodical. He has successfully built a really, really um, a successful label. And uh, during Fashion Week, he had a, a packed show at, at the Tate, which was great to watch. Amazing. Well, let's hear from David now. Nugent paid a huge part in helping me to kind of create the label and being able to kind of succeed the way I managed especially at the early stages of the career when you're trying to put together collection, business plan and shows together. It becomes a very, very challenging 
task and they are the best people to really help you and kind of nurture you in every aspect of creating a, a fashion business. Like you would get a standalone show supported by New Gen, which was quite incredible because you don't need to think about the, the space, the production, and uh, most importantly, because uh, once you kind of approved by industry professionals and you're supported by them, that kind of affects all sides of business, uh, including press and buyers. New Gen itself, it's very unusual institution that really helps and generates this kind of bond and helps to create these success stories. Starting a brand now is very different than it was maybe when you were starting. Do you look to the younger talents now and to the people that are now applying for new gen, either for inspiration or for help? Do people come to you? Is there still this dialogue among alumni and current participants of new gen? There is a lot of events that happening organized by new gen. For example, back then I was incredibly thankful because uh, my first trip to Paris with the collection was with them and we traveled to Brazil and to LA, all of that with a group of other designers. So you get this feel of community and the bond and then relationships that kind of stay kind of over the years. And with the the new talents coming on board and getting new gen, we normally meet on different events that organized by uh, BFCs. London is very kind of a community slash super friendly designer group. That was designer David Comer there. The exhibition Rebel, 30 Years of London Fashion is on at London's Design Museum until the 11th of February, 2024. We'll be right back after this. Watch out for Monocle Films. Since launch, Monocle's eagle-eyed filmmakers and journalists have cut and framed visually vivid dispatches and documentaries from all corners of the globe. From industry reports and intrepid journeys to one-on-one interviews with voices that inspire. You only have one chance in life to do something like this and be, be part of it. If it works or not, who knows, but you can only try. With hundreds of films available, there's plenty of exploring to be done. Just head to monocle.com slash film now. Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor, is still with us. We've heard a few exhibitions, heard about a few exhibitions, rather. What are some of the, the show highlights that you've seen this year? I know David's was a, was a standout, but uh, any others that jumped out at you? So it was a busy weekend and uh, quite a few shows happening. For me, the highlight pretty much every season is uh, Jonathan Anderson. He took over the Camden Roundhouse on Saturday morning. It was a packed show People did wake up at 10 a.m., even if it was a Saturday, and made sure they were there. And he did not disappoint. What he does really well is balance sort of practicality and commerce with more conceptual uh, ideas. And he did exactly that. He spoke about clothes that are plain but not too plain, uh, things that are have utility and are practical, but still there's design details and elements that, that make them interesting. The fact that he is in London and he managed to find this balance for himself, grow his business is 
really good for the whole city and for the whole local fashion industry because it means that he now uh, is one of the biggest draws and, and his presence brings the big buyers, the big um, international editors to the city. So you have these, the, I guess, these well-established British brands. Uh, what about some new names? Were there were there any standouts in terms of people joining Fashion Week for the first time? There are also quite a few younger names, as always, in London. Uh, this season, I loved uh, Tove, which is a brand that has been around for a while but has just started uh, showing in London. And this time, they uh, presented a collection in the Hayward Gallery, which was really fitting because they're real minimalists and they, they love purist design. It was clean, it was simple, but really beautiful. And it's two best friends uh, designing together. So a, a real women's brand and uh, really beautiful to watch them grow. Sensational. And then I guess also I need to ask, was there, was there anyone missing as well that, that you felt maybe didn't turn up this year or that should have really been in the mix? Sadly, there have been quite a few absences in London. I mean, ever since the pandemic, and but I think this season in particular, we were speaking about it more. The designer Dilara Fintikoglu, she's a Turkish designer, very successful. I mean, she had a great summer designing some of the most incredible dresses for the Barbie premiere, for example. She's very conceptual, but she spoke very honestly and said that she could not afford to host the show. So she cancelled it last minute. Um, another designer that, again, is uh, always a highlight in the, in the schedule, Nancy Dojaka, was absent too. And then there were absences by designers who have completely shut their businesses, including Christopher Kane, one of my personal favourite designers, and Michael Halpern, who last year, I think, we had him on the show. He's such a talent. He's um, an American designer based in London and he used to do these really exuberant sequin creations, really jazzy, really fun, loved among the industry. But I guess the realities of today and sometimes the lack of support means that it's it's not sustainable to, to keep going. What do the, the closure or the shuttering of those brands mean for the London scene and, and the industry here? It just means that there's less of this incredible creative talent around the week. And also, I think it means that less of the younger designers who are now graduating are encouraged to take the leap and uh, start their own businesses because they see how hard it is. And I was speaking to a buyer the other day and she was telling me that, you know, they're always looking for young talent, but now it's, it's so, it takes so much longer for them to pick them up and support them financially because the stakes are higher and there's just so much more of everything that it's harder for someone as talented as they might be to make it through and, and cut through the noise. But it just goes to show that it's important for each and every one of us to maybe look a little bit further when it comes to our shopping choices, I think, not just by the, the names we're familiar with and, and find some of these independent talents and support them. We're moving on from, I guess, a reflective moment here. Let, let, let's look at some positive things that are happening in the industry as well. I mean, tell me a little bit about The Outsider's Perspective, which I know is a, a platform uh, we're going to hear from its founder shortly. But, but set it up for us. Explain how this works. So The Outsider's Perspective was launched last year by Jamie 
McGill, who uh, used to be the chief executive officer at Roxanda. And he trained as an architect, had a background in finance, and then came into fashion himself. Having experienced the industry uh, from the inside, he decided to launch the outsider's perspective, work with the British Fashion Council in order to address some of these issues that we were speaking about, um, make sure that people have the support they need, but also that there are people behind the scenes who can offer brands a different level of support and help build stronger businesses. So he's also helping. He's not just looking at design. uh, He's helping people from all different backgrounds, giving them the skills to enter the industry. You might be a lawyer who's interested in pivoting into fashion. You might be an accountant. And the fashion industry does tend to be quite mysterious, quite gated. There's no obvious way in. Sometimes there's no application online. You need to know someone. So he's trying to open a lot of these doors and just make London Fashion Week, but also every office in, a, in London fashion businesses more diverse and inclusive with people that have different backgrounds, but also different set of skills that's lacking. And that means that sometimes businesses don't have those strong foundations. That sounds like it will only lead to better and better products and output as, you know, we bring more perspectives in. Let's hear from Jamie Gill, who joined you in the studio here at Midori House earlier. I think the challenge is for anybody who's done 10 years working in any industry and that they want to try a new industry, transfer over, it becomes so challenging because when you apply to any brand, they'll say that you don't have industry experience. So you're 10 years working in financial services or in corporate law and you really want to work in film or media or anything, you apply and even if you're applying to work in the legal function of a media organisation, you don't have media experience if you've just been working in corporate law and you're rejected. And that is the common thing we see so often but organizations are really missing out on really amazing talent that brings a fresh perspective so we bring diversity in industry experience diversity in professional experience as well as diversity from underrepresented communities which brings different lived in uh, life experience as well that's what we're aiming to do social purpose is the overarching but we're doing it as a tangible business solution for organizations we're not saying to any business to wipe their workforce clean and hire completely externally from alternate industries. What we're saying is pepper that in. That is what inclusion is. That is what diversity is. As a creative sector, beyond just fashion, we market ourselves and we pride ourselves on being innovative. And we are innovative when it comes to a design point of view, a commentary on society, how that's metaphorically understood or presented. But when it comes to the operational side, what's needed to deliver that vision, we're not in abundance of professional rigor in that business side of what's needed to drive that. In law or banking or marketing, advertising, you can go and earn your stripes. It's a big corporate. You go and do your training scheme and you take it into industry and you are free and you're at a robust level. Whereas in a creative sector, that obvious training ground for the business side of of our organisations isn't there. And I don't think the onerous is on the fashion schools, on education. I think their role is, you know, thinking about St Martins and thinking about London College of Fashion. It is about that time to be super creative and free and test your ideas. It's interesting. We're speaking about the training and the skills side, but there's also sort of a preconception about entering the creative industries as a less safe 
job in the same way that you went from training as an architect to finance. I was discouraged from uh, going into journalism at first and was uh, the advice that I got was to get a safer marketing job, for example. What is it that we need to do to change those perceptions and those attitudes, especially for people that don't come from privileged backgrounds. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do as part of our mission at the Outsider's Perspective is that to professionalise somewhat the industry. If you think of the creative sector, fashion is the largest contributor to GDP out of all of the other creative sectors. We give a bigger contribution to the economy than automobile. But if you think about automobile, I think people would consider it a serious industry. I don't think we have presented ourselves as being as hard of a business as it really is to actually you know, succeed, to actually the skills needed, the talent needed, the understanding needed to grow and develop a fashion brand in this economy right now is quite extensive and quite vast. And then to scale it, the skills needed then in terms of business acumen and international growth and understanding and the practicalities around legal and finance and the compliance and, and, and everything that comes with it. I don't think it's known that actually, what is it to be uh, a chief merchandising officer? Well, a chief merchandising officer, I would think, would have to have a really strong, robust skill set in analytics, as well as style. <laughs> so much that would go into that uh, career ladder that I don't think people would understand. So actually coming from a financial background and having a, a, a knowledge base and an appreciation of art and commentary and what's going on in society, you kind of naturally are building what you need to actually merchandise. I think why the outsider's perspective has landed at this time is the increase in visible representation of underrepresented communities or disadvantaged communities in fashion is increasing. 100%. I don't think you would ever look at a marketing campaign that didn't include what we would consider as underrepresented communities. Fashion shows appear very diverse. I think for anybody to stage a completely all-white runway show right now would be disastrous. And they would understand the repercussions of that from PR, from social media. However, there is an element of, I'd say, as DNI washing, as we've seen with greenwashing with that. It's all well and good to continually look inclusive in runway, in marketing campaigns, to represent your consumer or to understand that we're inclusive for everybody, and especially with Gen Z wanting authenticity and transparency from brands as well. But when you look behind the scenes, and I can speak, you know, both on the creative side, when you're looking behind the scenes at a fashion show production or you're looking behind the scenes of a campaign shoot, especially when you're looking behind the scenes at the HQ, at the workforce, and that is exactly where the outsider's perspective focus is, I think the numbers have got worse. I think three years since the Black Lives Matter movement erupted, I don't think the data has improved any metrics at all. They're very marginal in places. And now we have seen such a step back in DNI initiatives now in a troublesome, uncertain, volatile economy we're in now where all sectors are struggling. It's an area that seems as a nice to have that was unresolved and it's a sunk cost. We'll all be dead by the time that we're going to see those returns so let's deprioritize. I think what happened historically with DNI was money was spent in the wrong areas. Money was spent on conjecture and talking and initiatives that didn't yield results. Anyone who's listening now, you know, don't be fooled by brands particularly who are using this as a conversation to appear diverse but are not allowing the contribution from underrepresented communities in-house to actually yield those results. Are there brands that have come to you since launching The Outsider's Perspective and you've seen them make progress and be willing to, to listen and to source talent from different backgrounds versus doing initiatives that are a lot more about 
ticking the box of a mandatory CSR strategy. 100%. I think, you know, the brands that we work with, the Outsiders Perspective brand partners, and I can say, you know, Burberry, Chanel, um, Alexander McQueen, Lululemon, Business of Fashion, Carla Otto, just, you know, names that come immediately to mind, have been very active in the conversation with us, are very supportive of what we're doing. We're not an active recruiter. We are bringing you amazing talent that has never had access to this space and is super smart and they're trained and there is a risk in onboarding because it's just going to take a little bit longer than it would for your seasoned candidate within industry because they effectively could run from day one. But even so, there's still an element of onboarding. Our ask is to be somewhat patient with these candidates, but when they do get going, they're going to bring with them this whole wealth of alternate industry experience as well as knowing how this industry operates. And I think the brand partners that we're working with are actively engaged, actively recruiting. We're placing more and more candidates into roles. It's not something that happens in a month. It can take three to six to nine months to do that migration from alternate industry into role. It's interesting that you say you've been working with these brands. Is it really important for organizations like yours or the British Fashion Council, which you also work with, to be spearheading this culture shift and these changes versus letting the individual brands do the work? I think it's the age-old conversation around working as a collective. And I think it does fall on the shoulders of not-for-profits. The British Fashion Council and the Outsiders' Perspectives are not-for-profit. And I think it allows us the right to really focus on on these conversations without shareholders' returns being, you know, first and foremost. But I think we need to work together. And I suppose in this kind of current climate, job market isn't robust as it has been before. We are seeing the aftermath of what's happened with the pandemic really hitting home now in all industries, you know, beyond fashion and the creative sector for sure. The more brand partners that kind of join this conversation, the more that we can move the needle by, the more opportunities that we're yielding to actually make the difference. Our metrics are in the next five years, how much will we have increased the representation data within industry and that be our focus of contribution. That was Jamie Gill there of The Outsider's Perspective. And that's all for today's show. Thank you so much, Natalie Theodosi. It was such a pleasure having you in the studio. You're welcome. We're going to go back upstairs and sit next to each other at our desk. But for for more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. The October issue is a fashion special, so you can read all about Natalie's... Well, I mean, I reported some of the work. I'm going to be honest, it's some pretty outstanding stuff in there, but it's certainly mostly Natalie's doing, so you can pick that up. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>